Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Wednesdays with Wesley, the podcast where we dive deep into the sermons and writings of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. My name is Bob Kaler. I'm pastor of Tri Lakes United Methodist Church in Monument, Colorado. And this week we're looking at Wesley's sermon on the means of grace. As we've been seeing through our study of Wesley's sermons, grace is really at the foundation of everything that he's talking about. God's love extended to us in in lavish ways that we respond to. And one of the ways that we receive that grace is through these means of grace, the ordinary means of grace, as Wesley will call them. And so as we begin, I want to invite us to think about the Wesleyan order of salvation again. So we have that straight in our minds. We've been talking about this, but to see how it all comes together is is really helpful. We think about preventing or prevenient grace. That is God's grace extended to all people. As we've seen, this is different than some Christian conceptions, which talk about the elect and the non-elect, the elect and the damned that God's grace is extended to some, but others are damned. Wesley believed that God's grace is extended to all people, that he desires that all shall be saved. Now, prevenient grace is not saving grace. That requires a response from us, that convincing grace that leads to repentance. Repentance is our first move back toward God. It's that moment that we see in Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal son comes to himself, that sense of coming to a desire to return home. And when we return home, Wesley would say that we enter in through the front door. He always thought of these as kind of the metaphor of a house. Provenient grace would be the porch. Justifying grace would be the front door where we enter into a new relationship. We're saved from the guilt of sin we're brought into the family of God. We receive the, the forgiveness and love of God that transforms us and begins what's called initial sanctification. We talked about this in the marks of the new birth. Faith, hope, and love begin to grow in us. And they grow through the continuing work of grace called sanctifying grace, which saves us from the power of sin. The more we grow in grace, The more we grow in the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the more we have power over sin in our lives, the more we're shaped into becoming the people God created us to be, leading us toward Christian perfection or entire sanctification, which is being made perfect in love, being made in the image of Christ to be saved from the root of sin in our lives and to be fully transformed into all that God made us to be. So as we can see through this order of salvation, it's all about transformation and it's all happening at God's initiative through the power of grace. But again, the key question is how does this grace come to us? Well, it may come to us in a moment. We certainly see that happen in scripture. We see Paul on the road to Damascus and he experiences this powerful moment of transformation in his encounter with Christ. I've seen it in other people who've had a massive transformation in in a single moment. 
for most people, it comes more gradually. I'm kind of a, an example of that, having grown up in the church and uh, grown in grace through my whole life and at various times. Uh, when I have, have taken detours, grace has drawn me back onto the path of where God is leading. That's a constant process. But Wesley would say that this grace comes to us most often when we are seeking it and when we are putting ourselves in a place to receive it. It comes through the ordinary means most often. The grace is activated through the means which we are formed into the image of God. So there is a a way for us to be shaped by this grace, a way for us to structure our lives and our time that this grace can continue to work in us and grow in us and and multiply in us. And so uh, uh, Ken Collins and Jason Vickers in their introduction to this sermon in their edition of Wesley's sermon sermons, uh, talks about the means of grace. They say that they are the ordinary channels whereby God might convey preventing, justifying, or sanctifying grace to humanity. So if we want to think about how these different operations of grace come to us, they most often come to us ordinarily through these means of grace. And what we're talking about here in this particular sermon are the instituted means of grace. These are means of grace that were instituted by Jesus, that he practiced, that he called us to to practice ourselves. These are prayer, searching the scriptures, the Lord's Supper, Christian conferencing, gathering together, and fasting. Those are the ordinary means of grace instituted by Christ. Now, a key distinction here is that these are means of grace, not the ends of grace. And this is important. These are channels by which grace is communicated and formed in us, but they're not the end product. We don't do these things in order to say, well, we've done them, therefore we have done enough. If that were the case, then Wesley says we would be stuck in a form of religion without the power. We would have all the external trappings, but we would not be transformed. I might have a regular rhythm of prayer and Bible study and going to worship, receiving the sacrament, all those kinds of things. But if it's not resulting in transformation, if it's not resulting in that grace being extended through me on its way to someone else, then it's probably not really at work in us. That's why these are means, not ends. Because the end for Wesley is always a heart renewed after the image of God, characterized by love of God and neighbor. Once again, what's the definition of a Methodist? One who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit given unto him. So that's an important distinction. These are means of grace, not the ends of grace. Now the text for this sermon is Malachi 3.7. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And then Wesley asked the questions, are there any ordinances now? Are there any of these statutes now since life and immortality were brought to light by the gospel? Are there under the Christian dispensation any means ordained by God as the usual channels of his grace. We saw in the Old Testament 
the laws, the statutes, the different ways of marking uh, people as belonging to God. We think of the food laws. <clears throat> we think of all kinds of uh, different laws that are in Leviticus and so forth that sort of give these people an identity. Are there similar kinds of things for us that mark us, but not so much that as so, as as much as channels of grace? Are there means through which we receive God's grace? And Wesley's going to argue that, yes, there are, the means ordained by Christ. And we see these lived out in the early church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They held all things in common. They spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home. They praised God and had the goodwill of all the people. So these are kind of the practices, the means that marked the early church. And that's an important important passage for us because these are the same things that mark the church today. These are the practices that are held in common across space and time. But the problem was that as Christian history has gone on, Wesley says the love of many has waxed cold and they've mistaken the means for the ends. And so these practices have continued, but without a heart renewed after the image of God. They've developed as outward works. I remember as a kid uh, going to camp and being taught that we had to have a quiet time. It was an essential kind of thing. And you had to feel that obligation to do that. If you weren't doing that, you weren't a real Christian. But there wasn't a sense of what that was supposed to produce in me. There was not a sense of why was I doing this to draw closer to God, to, to become more like Jesus. We didn't think about those quiet times, as we called them, as means of grace. To see everything that we do and every commandment of God having the end of loving God and neighbor. These are holy habits, in other words, that help us to develop that love of God and neighbor, to increase our capacity for both. And so in, in the early church, as Christian history has gone on, we've seen it in our own time, sometimes these means become an occasion for falling because they move from blessing to burden. We think we have to do them because we have to do them. We don't do them out of joy because we seek to increase our capacity for love of God and neighbor. Or in other Christian uh, uh, traditions, they became despised, such as in quietism, which sort of got rid of all of these practices to to kind of go for a, a more passive absorption of grace as if outward religious practices had nothing to do with Christianity that you could just sort of receive it by osmosis. We don't want anything to look too much like a work. So we, we will get rid of those in order to receive God's grace uh, without them. So you can see the problem that when we, these means of grace are used improperly, they can become a burden rather than a blessing they can be seen as outward works rather than means to the great end of growing in the love of God and neighbor. So the definition of means of grace here for Wesley is very important because this is a term generally used in the Christian church for many ages, he says, he says and, 
And he, he defines them this way. By means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, or actions ordained of God and appointed for this end to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey to men preventing, justifying, or sanctifying grace. Here again is that definition. These are the means through which this grace is conveyed to us, preventing, justifying, sanctifying grace. No matter whether you are a new Christian or growing in entire sanctification, you are receiving this grace largely through these ordinary means. It reminds me of the definition of a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward grace, and a means whereby we receive the same. Means are both outward and inward. They transform and reshape us, those holy habits that lead us toward renewal in the image of God characterized by love of neighbor. That's why these are means, not ends. And what are the chief means of grace? Well, Wesley boils them down to three. Of course, there are more than this, but in this particular sermon, he's going to address three of them. That is prayer, public and private, searching the scriptures, reading, hearing, and meditating on them, and the Lord's Supper, eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of Jesus. Now, there's some important distinctions Wesley wants to make at the outset here. That the whole value of the means depends on their actual subservience to the end of religion. Renewal in the image of God characterized by love of God and neighbor. There it is again. Everything depends on that. That's what these are designed for. And they cannot be separated from the Holy Spirit. There is no inherent power in the means of grace without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. As Wesley said, it is he alone who by his own almighty power worketh in us what is pleasing in his sight. This is one of the great uh, things about Wesleyan theology is that it's always grounded in the work of the Holy Spirit. So these means of grace are not simply something we do. These are means by which the Holy Spirit uses uh, to, to transform us. And it, it is at the Spirit's initiative that that happens. But this means also that these means of grace cannot alone atone for sin. Christ is the only means of grace, and so there is no merit in the means alone. They are the means by which we receive Christ and all his benefits. So we cannot simply say, well, I've, I've read my Bible, I've gone to communion, I've prayed, therefore I'm, I'm saved and my sin is atoned for. There's more to it than that. These are the means by which we receive Christ and his, all of his benefits, including atonement, including forgiveness, including uh, salvation. And so Wesley says, all who desire the grace of God are to wait. God, let me say this again. All who desire the grace of God are to wait for it in the means which he hath ordained in using, not laying them aside. So let's look at these three briefly. First, prayer. Wesley calls this the first means of waiting upon God's grace. And he takes very seriously here Jesus' direction in the Sermon on the Mount, to knock, to seek, to ask in prayer, to ask persistently, to pray in private and in public, that all who desire the grace of God are to wait for it in the way of prayer. 
And when you look at Wesley's life and you look at the life of the early Methodist movement, you see that it's grounded in these Anglican roots of different types of prayer. For example, Wesley would have used the the Book of Common Prayer in his Anglican worship as an Anglican priest and in his daily devotions. He would have used the daily office, which is morning, midday, and evening prayer. And it's a, it's a rhythm of prayer that uses confession, uses scripture, prays the Psalms. And so a lot of these prayers are written, the collect for the day, the collect for the week, all those things are part of, of the daily office. If you've never used the daily office, I'd encourage you to get a copy of the Book of Common Prayer, and there are a number of new editions out. We've used the Anglican Church North America edition, but I also love the, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is written in that, that King James kind of English that uh, really elevates the language. Uh, if you read some of the history of the Book of Common Prayer, one of the things you'll see is that that even people like Shakespeare and others borrowed from earlier editions of the Book of Common Prayer, that sort of rhythm of language. It's such a beautiful way of, of thinking. And so written prayer is part of it, but also extemporaneous prayer. Wesley believed in that as well, that prayer should come spontaneously from the heart. We should be able to pray and intercede for those around us. And that we pray in different ways as well, that we do prayers of confession, we have prayers of praise, we do intercession. And so to think about prayer as a, as a comprehensive way of connecting with God of waiting upon God's grace, of bringing ourselves into the presence of God. Now, we can do a whole podcast on Wesley's conception of prayer. We'll probably do that in the future. But just to give you an idea that that that's essential to Wesley's understanding, it's a primary means of grace, that we pray, and as as, uh, Paul would say, pray without ceasing, that it becomes part of our, our rhythm of life. The second means of grace that Wesley addresses here is searching the scriptures. He quotes from John 5, 39, of searching the scriptures that we might believe in him. And so searching the scriptures means that we hear them, we hear them read out loud in worship, we read them ourselves, we meditate upon them. And the scriptures are the means by which God gives, confirms, and increases true wisdom. This is how we learn about who God is. This is how we learn about what God wants us to do. And Wesley says it's the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments that we have to dive into. And if you use the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, a daily lectionary, which Wesley would have used, there are readings each day from the Old and the New Testaments. So many Christians want to emphasize the New Testament. In fact, some have said in recent days, it's almost a Marcion kind of heresy from from the days of the early church where people wanted to kind of unhook from the Old Testament because God seems different in the Old Testament. That That's a incorrect assumption. We need to understand the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. They work together. There's a reason why the Old Testament is quoted extensively in the New Testament, and especially quoted a lot by Jesus. So we have to search all of the scriptures 
to find the full counsel of God, to have them be authoritative in our lives. And here again, and we can do another whole podcast episode on the authority of Scripture in the Wesleyan tradition, and we will do that too. But just to give you an idea that that daily prayer and daily engagement in searching the Scriptures are important means of grace, two primary means of grace, two rhythms that we need to develop that will help us increase our capacity and love for God and for neighbor. And then there's the third one, which is the Lord's Supper, which is done at the direction of the Lord. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And so Wesley calls us to examine ourselves to see if we really desire to be conformed to the death of Christ. Here's the quote, is not the eating of that bread and the drinking of that cup, the outward visible means whereby God conveys into our souls all that spiritual grace, that righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, which were purchased by the blood of Christ once broken and the blood of Christ once shed for us. Let all therefore who truly desire the grace of God eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, whatever term you use for it, is an essential means of grace. It's the ongoing means of grace, the ongoing sacrament. We have two sacraments in Methodism, as do most Protestant churches. Baptism, which happens once, and the Lord's Supper, which is a continuing ordinance. And Wesley will talk a lot about communion. He wrote another sermon that we'll look at also called The Duty of Constant Communion, where he says that it is the duty of every Christian to receive the Lord's Supper as often as he can. Why? First, because it's the plain command of Christ. Jesus said, do this, so we ought to do it. Secondly, because the benefits are so great, the benefits that are conveyed through the sacrament, forgiveness of past sins, I mean, what do we do before we come to the table? We say the prayer of confession. We offer our sins before the Lord. We see them forgiven. We receive the present strengthening and refreshing of our souls, Wesley says, when we come to the table. The grace of God contained in the sacrament confirms the pardon of our sins by enabling us to leave them. This is food of our souls. This gives strength to perform our duty and lead us on to perfection. There's a lot there to go through, but Wesley believed that communion was a converting sacrament. And and I've seen this happen. I was doing a wedding once early in my ministry where we did communion as part of the the wedding ceremony. And of course, if you're going to do communion in the wedding, you don't just do it for the couple, you do it for everyone present. And, And we celebrate uh, an open communion in the in the sense that we invite all who love Christ, all who earnestly repent of their sin, all who seek to live at peace with one another, as our liturgy says. That's the invitation to the table. So we don't check people's certificates at the door. If you love Christ, you can come to receive. If you seek forgiveness of your sins, if you seek uh, to live at peace with God and and with others, you you are welcome at the table. And we can get into the theology of of communion and what we really mean by open communion, and we'll get into that also when we talk about the sacrament down the road. But I remember in that particular instance, there was a bridesmaid 
who came up to me after the ceremony with tears in her eyes. And I said, well, what's, what's wrong? I mean, weddings are always full of drama, so you never know what's actually going on. She said, I just have to tell you that I, I kind of know a little bit about Christianity. I don't know a ton and I've, I've been in churches before I've been in weddings before she said, but something happened to me when you broke the bread and you said those words, the body of Christ broken for you. And then you lifted the cup and said the blood of Christ shed for you. And she said, I felt for the first time, like, like God was talking to me, like this was done for me. And, and I want to go deeper. I want to know more. I want to know more about this God who has done this for me. I know the basics of the story, but I want to know more and I want to go deeper. It was a powerful moment. And it's one of those moments that I think conveys to us the importance of it, that the reason that we share in the sacrament, it's an invitation. It's an invitation like Jesus sitting down with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they were he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's what I thought of in that moment, that Christ was made known to this young woman in the breaking of the bread. And I've often said to people that, you know, in our church, we don't do altar calls. We do Holy Communion, which is our altar call. We do communion, the Lord's Supper, every Sunday at every service. And we follow the rubrics in the in the book of worship and the ancient pattern of word and table, the giving of the word and then the response to the word of moving toward the table to receive Christ and all his benefits when we come to receive this means of grace at the altar. So people will come forward normally um, uh, when it's not coronatide to receive the elements and to hear those words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. That, that's the moment for me that worship always leads to, that tangible means of receiving the grace of Jesus Christ, to taste and see that the Lord is good. I read Duty of Constant Communion years ago, more deeply, and we've been doing weekly communion ever since. I think every church I serve and from here on out and every place I am, um, whether that uh, is I'm staying where I'm in for a long time or if I wind up in another place, I will always push for that because I think it's essential. If it's If it's something the Lord commands us to do very specifically, then it's something we should do as often as possible. And I understand why a lot of churches do communion monthly. That's kind of a leftover of an old pattern from days when there were circuit riders who would only come around once a month and who were, the elders were only authorized to officiate a communion. So churches would do that. I think now most of that has been gone, has gone by the wayside. In other words, that in most places, unless you're truly riding a circuit as a pastor there's really no mean, no reason for you not to extend this means of grace on a on a weekly basis at least i uh I have a lot of strong opinions about that, as you might imagine 
<laughs> but I, I do think it's it's essential because Jesus commands it. Wesley says it's important to us. We ought to do it as as often as possible. So I'll leave it there for now, and we'll get back to this at another time. Wesley says it this way, If therefore we have any regard for the plain command of Christ, if we desire the pardon of our sins, if we wish for strength to believe, to love, and obey God, then we should neglect no opportunity of receiving the Lord's Supper. You know, for a long time, I think preachers have seen the sermon as being the central part of the worship service, and the giving of the Word is a major part of the worship service. But when we push communion aside in order to make sure that our that we have more length of time for our sermons, we're depriving our people of the bread of heaven in many ways. Thus saith Bob, and rant concluded. Now, Wesley's going to go on in this sermon to address some objections to the means of grace, because people are going to say about Wesley that he puts too much emphasis on these. So he's going to address those criticisms right up front. This is something he does often, as you've seen. He will talk about what it is not as much as he will talk about what it is. So one of the objections is, aren't you putting too much trust in these means of grace for salvation? In other words, Wesley says, people will say to him, you cannot use these means without trusting in them. And he asks, where is that written? Or some would say, leave off of them for a short time to see whether you trusted in them or no. And Wesley's response is, so am I to disobey God in order to know whether I trust in obeying him? Wesley says, I I look for the blessings of God within these sacraments. I will believe that whatever God has promised, he is faithful to perform. In other words, if God has told me to do these things, if Christ has told me to do, do these things, he's done them himself, he's demonstrated how to do them, then why would I see these as anything other than means of grace that we should be practicing? No, we don't rely on them alone for salvation, but we rely on them to receive the grace that is necessary for salvation. We rely on them as holy habits that help us to, to work, our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as, as Paul will say. Now, another objection is that this would be seeking salvation by works. That you're saying, well, you have to do these works Therefore, you're not really buying into the free grace of God. You are, you are seeking salvation by works. Now, by works, we can look at a lot of different ways of thinking about that. We can look at it from the perspective that Paul tends to look at it, that works are primarily referring to the Mosaic law, or we can look at our own works, or we can look at the idea that we're trying to merit righteousness, that we're trying to do good in order to build up our bank account of goodness against that of our sin. All of those are non-starters for Wesley. He says this, but how is either these implied in my waiting in the way God has ordained and expecting that he will meet me there because he has promised so to do? In other words, again, God has commanded these things. He's commanded that we wait upon him in these ways and that he will meet us there because he has promised to do so. So why would I leave off of these? Why would I see these as as dead works? These are the means of grace. 
And God meets us and blesses us through the means, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. We do these things in response to what Christ has done because we want to know Christ. We want to grow in our knowledge of him. We want to grow in grace. I love how Wesley puts it here. He says, if God himself has appointed a way, can you find a better way of waiting for him? Christ is the means of grace, yes. But the God who gave us Christ for our salvation also gave us the means by which we wait on him for that salvation. Now, another objection is that is one from quietism, that we should stand still and see the salvation of God. It's a quote from Exodus, where Moses is standing there at the shore of the Red Sea. The Egyptians are bearing down on them. And Moses says to the people, stand still and see the salvation of our God. And so quietism would say that we don't really need to do anything that we can simply, again, receive this salvation without doing these means. Now, Wesley's going to point out that in the very next verse there in Exodus, God commands the people to go forward. They have to go do something. So Wesley says, this was the salvation of God, which they stood still to see by marching forward with all their might. Think about Abraham. Wesley doesn't talk about this, but I'm going to bring it up because I think it's important. Abraham receives this powerful message of God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Uh, Go to the land that I will show you. So there's this this movement of God given to them. I'm going to I'm going to bless you Abraham. I'm going to give you all this thing. But but what what really is the most important verse in that whole context is that it says that Abraham went. He did what God commanded. And so quietism would say that we can receive all the blessings of God without having to obey the commands of God. And so Wesley would say that the means of grace help us to obey God's command rather than being simple passive recipients of grace, that we go forward. We use the means, we use the order God has given us in order to grow in that grace and to follow him. Now, another objection, some would point out Colossians 2.20, if you are dead with Christ, why are you subject to ordinances? Well, Wesley says the ordinances that are mentioned in that verse are not the ordinances of Christ. They're talking about the ancient ordinances of the Jewish law, which we talked about before, the food laws and circumcision and all those kinds of things. But rather, Wesley says, all who desire the grace of God are to wait for it in the means which he hath ordained. This is not about adding additional laws and ordinances, but rather using the means and example of Christ to access this grace and to wait upon it. So how do we use these means of grace? What's the order and manner in which they are used? Wesley kind of gives a a preview or an example of how this grace comes to us and how it works in us. That prevenient grace brings sinners towards salvation. We receive that convincing of the Holy Spirit And we hear about how we might flee from the wrath to come. And so we begin to hear and read and meditate on the scriptures. We begin to talk about the things of God. And we begin to talk with God in prayer. 
And then we might observe others going to the Lord's table and see that as a converting ordinance. We want what is there. And thus, Wesley says, he continues in God's way in hearing, reading, meditating, praying, and partaking in the Lord's Supper till God in the manner that pleases him speaks to his heart. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. These means of grace, in other words, even if we practice them before we are believers, can help draw us closer to God. So many times I've heard testimonies of people who were in a hotel room and picked up the Gideon Bible that was there in the nightstand and simply started to read it and and were drawn to wanting to, to become Christians after after doing so. That's a means of grace. That's the spirit at work through the means of grace. I already talked about the young woman who who experienced that desire to turn to God because of being exposed to one of the means of grace. And so God can use these means in any way and at any place along the Christian journey to draw people to him, to draw them into love of God and neighbor. It's not about what order they happen in. It's about how the Spirit uses them. Wesley says, Yet as we find no command in Holy Writ for any particular order to be observed herein, so neither do the providence and the Spirit of God adhere to any without variation, but the means into which different men are led and in which they find the blessing of God are varied, transposed, and combined together a thousand different ways. There are lots of different ways, in other words, that these means of grace can be used of God to transform people, to bring them into salvation. And so whatever opportunity serves, Wesley says, use all the means which God hath ordained. For who knows in which God will meet thee with the grace that brings salvation. We need to use all these means of grace. We need to teach our people how to, how to use them. We need to practice them and infuse them with great meaning, remembering that they are means, not ends, but, but we have to use the means in order to experience the ends. And so we have to remember that God is above all the means, Wesley says, that God can convey great grace both within them and without them. There is no power in the means of grace apart from God, apart from the Holy Spirit at work in them. But at the end of the day, Wesley says, because God bids, therefore I do. Because he directs me to wait in this way, therefore here I wait for his free mercy, whereof cometh my salvation. These means of grace are important, in other words, because Christ commands us to do them. And when we do them, we meet him in very powerful ways. Here's another quote. Remember also to use all means as means as ordained, not for their own sake, but in order to the renewal of your soul in righteousness and true holiness. If therefore they actually tend to this, well. But if not, they are dung and dross. We use these means of grace for the renewal of our souls and righteousness and true holiness. If we're not using them for that purpose, then Wesley says they are worthless to us. We need to use them for the means and for the ways in which Christ gave them to us. 
So if we are people who use the means of grace regularly, you might be listening to this and saying, well, I do all these things regularly. That's great. But it's not a point for self-congratulation. God has ordained that ordained these means, therefore God gets the credit for their value in our lives. We didn't come up with this. It's not us doing it. It's the Holy Spirit working through them. But we have to put ourselves in a place to practice them as a regular discipline. Think of them as opportunities to meet God and to receive all that God wants to give us in grace and holiness and love. That these are the places where we become transformed. Not the only places, but the ordinary means that God meets us in. We tend to be transform, transformed by our habits. And Wesley would say that developing these holy habits is essential. If we feel far from God and His grace, it's likely because we are not using the means He ordained. I experienced this in my own life. If I get off of my routines of, of being in the means of grace, of searching the scriptures, of prayer, uh, of all those means of grace that are appointed. When I neglect those habits, I begin to feel more distant from God. And that's not a coincidence. These habits are activating God's grace in us. Provenient, justifying, sanctifying grace. Renewing us in the image of God and love of God and neighbor. So I want to encourage you, if you are a, a Wesleyan, a Methodist, to think about how these means of grace are being activated in your life. What kind of holy habits do you do? Do you see these as means to the end of growing in grace? Have they become a chore for you? If so, they may need some refreshing, and you may need to look at how you can think about them again or, or modify them so that they become means of grace again. And if you haven't been involved in a regular rhythm of practicing the means of grace, there's no better way to do this than simply to start. I recommend using the Book of Common Prayer because it gives you an outline for this. I tend to be a very head kind of spirituality. Uh, that's how I access it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an intellectual kind of way of looking at this. I like to read and so using the Book of Common Prayer helps me focus. When I close my eyes and try to meditate, my mind tends to go in a lot of different directions. It doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. I just know that for me, I'm wired a little bit differently. And so if you need a place to start, using something like, the, like a Book of Common Prayer can help you to develop a rhythm where you're reading prayers, focusing on them, reading the scriptures every day, Praying the Psalms, which is a powerful discipline, and then coming to worship on Sunday to receive the sacrament. That's a, all of those working together are habits that enable God to work in you in new and exciting ways. Because God meets us sometimes in the most ordinary places, and usually when we're paying attention to Him, when we've made space for Him in our lives. And the means of grace enable us to do that. And if you're a preacher, let me give my personal exhortation to think about incorporating Holy Communion as a more regular pattern in the worship of your congregation. 
if this is a means of grace and Jesus says, do this, then we ought to do it. And we ought to neglect no opportunity of offering it to our people to invite them to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Look, we do an hour service. I do three services every Sunday. They're an hour each. I still do a 25-minute sermon, and we still do communion for everyone. And we do all the other parts of the liturgy. It can be done. We just have to have the will to do it. I would never go back, and I don't think my congregation would ever go back to not having that as a regular practice and discipline. So I just want to encourage you and challenge you to think about that. We'll talk more about Wesleyan sacramental theology as we go forward, but practice the means of grace and you'll discover that Christ meets you there and he has much to offer you as you turn to him. Thank you for joining me on this edition of Wednesdays with Wesley. We'll see you back here next time as we dive into yet another sermon. Have a great week.